Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Florida Medical Director's Journal Club. Um, today, we are going to be talking with Pamela Scarborough about um, COVID skin manifestations. Um, just to give you a little background on Pamela, I don't want to steal her thunder because she's going to introduce herself. Um, there, you know, it's rare when we see someone who has so much experience and so much passion for what um, they do. Her career spans over 40 years. Um, she's board certified as a wound specialist, and um, she approached us to talk to us about COVID skin manifestations, and I thought, you know, this is a wonderful topic. It is something that we have yet to really wrap our heads around. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Pam, Pamela, um, and let her um, steal the show. Thank you, I appreciate that introduction so much. And I wanna thank all of you for being here today. As, um, as was mentioned, this is a passion of mine. Uh, my company has let me go down this road. They were very gracious, American Medical Technologies, where I have the, truly the privilege to uh, work, do the work that takes care of my caregiver heart and to have to try to help our clinicians with to have better outcomes for their patients. So I'm primarily these days doing wound prevention and management, 100% for the long-term care setting. I am a wound specialist board certified by the American Board of Wound Management, a fellow of the American Association of Wound Care. And so I focus on wound prevention and management, the regulations, the clinical aspects. We'll look at the whole patient, not just the hole in the patient, and what we have found back in April, this past April, some of these strange skin manifestations were coming up. And not only were the skin manifestations coming up, it was messing with our wound healing opportunities. COVID has also diminished our wound healing opportunities. So a lot of the things that are happening in our buildings, as you're going to see here in just a few minutes, some things we think it looks like a pressure injury. It's not. It's COVID, and we're even going to talk about a little bit about the uh, ICD-10s. Are the ICD-10s serving you? So I hope that you related to COVID skin and mucous membranes. So I hope you will interact with us or with me, our, our whole panel, on this presentation as we go through this today. So I do have to my company. Uh, they are very generous with my time and what I do, and they have insisted that I read this disclaimer. And so here we go. This information is provided for informational purposes only. Patient management decisions should be based on a number of factors, including, but not limited to, professional society guidelines and published clinical literature relevant to a patient's condition. Providers are encouraged to rely on their training and expertise, as well as any and all information prior to making management or treatment decisions for any individual patient. So our learning objectives today, we're going to talk about a call for action, looking at education. We need an awareness campaign. And the way AMT is allowing me to do this is I am starting to do education, as much education as I can around the country. And I'm so privileged to be able to do this for you. And I mean that with all my heart when I say I am the one that's privileged to do this for you. And I'm so grateful. So we need a call for action. We need to 
take this awareness to our, our, our medical and our lay community. I have people, I have friends who have had COVID skin manifestations and they didn't know they had COVID. They were infectious and they're walking around. We had to get them cohorted in their homes because they didn't know this. Is this part of the problem in long-term care? And we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. And then I think, not just me, a whole group of us think we have a group working with CMS and the CDC to see if we need specific ICD-10 codes related to the skin and mucosal membrane manifestations specifically for ICD-10s for COVID skin. We have something, and I'll go through that with you, this COVID, the um, ICD-10 codes that we have that you might be using right now for your skin manifestations, and I hope you'll tell me if we're using them or not. And then I'm going to talk to you about the COVID skin campaign that I'm helping to uh, manage related to getting this information for long-term care. I'm going to talk to you about the registry. So that's kind of where we're going, and I'm going to get started. This came, this statement came from the Florida Healthcare Association communication on January 14th, and it was so apropos for this program today that I wanted to, to share it with you. Because sorry to jump is, in. Pamela, you want to share your screen for us so we can all see everything? I am so sorry, Shane. I no, thought no, it was sharing. I am so sorry. Let's see. All right. I am oh, so right. sorry. I really, I usually do not have these problems. All no right, problem. so we're going to talk about a little bit about. Now, do you just see the presenters share? No, that's perfect. You're good. That's You're perfect. good. All right, thank you. So we all know that coronavirus is a version of common viruses that cause infections in the upper respiratory areas, and that most of them aren't fatal. This one caused by SARS-CoV-2 is known to trigger the respiratory tract infections in the upper respiratory and the lower respiratory tract and spreads the same way that others do. And they, the, the um, outcome from this infection for the novel coronavirus goes, it ranges from mild to, uh, to no symptoms. It ranges from no symptoms to mild to, of course, deadly. And then briefly, we've all heard about the cytokine storm associated with COVID-19. And cytokines, as we know, are part of our immune system and have an effect on other cells. Now, wound management, where I come from, the wound healing cytokines are part of the normal component of the inflammatory response. And the second phase of wound healing is the inflammatory response that takes place. So the cytokine, this inflammatory response to the skin and tissue damage, we need this inflammatory response to facilitate wound closure. However, with COVID-19, this immune activity becomes overactive, creating a situation where the immune cells are not able to stop themselves. These overreactive cytokines spread beyond the infected body part and start attacking healthy cells, which is a lot of what we're seeing. And leaving the respiratory tract and going to all the other organs, all the major organs, including the skin, are affected by this virus. So one of the complications, for, it appears to be these blood clots that are developing throughout the body because of this hypercoagulopathy state. And we wanna remember that the skin is the largest organ of the body. And it appears that this cytokine storm is responsible for some of the skin changes that we're seeing in our patients and residents with COVID-19. And, and this is important, these skin changes imitate dermatological skin issues, or the skin that, that we're seeing in other types of wounds, such as pressure injuries, arterial insufficiency. So as a provider, 
your differential diagnosis process becomes critical to help our patients and residents in the buildings that we're in. So listed here, you all know this, I'm not even gonna read this list of the major or the main symptoms for COVID-19, you recognize these. However, however, there are silent manifestations such as skin and mucosal or dermatology symptoms that should be considered when found on the body of our patients or residents and should be assessed for differential, uh, to be differentiated from other dermatological symptoms during this pandemic. So I am not a dermatologist, and this is not a dermatology lecture. This is an awareness campaign to alert everyone, the medical community, the lay public, people that are coming into our buildings. We need a sign that says, do you or your family members have um, any symptoms for COVID? We always ask about this. We take temperatures. That's great. But what about the silent manifestations that are under this clothes that we can't see and they don't know about? My grandson came up recently. He's working at a, a, a food place. I don't know if it's McDonald's or someplace like that. He's young. And he comes up with all these skin uh, uh, maculopapular eruptions. And he's going to work. And I'm asking him to go get a COVID test. And he thinks I'm crazy. He did get a COVID test. Uh, it was negative, but I wonder if it was really negative. So this is just an article I wanted to mention. I have a, a lot of resources for you. Several of the, um, of the resources have been uploaded for you. Shane uploaded them for you. And this is an article from the Cleveland Clinic where the physician stated that it is unusual for a primarily respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2 to have such wide ranging effects in the body, including the skin and mucosa. And that one of the most striking features of COVID-19 is this wide spectrum of clinical manifestations and outcomes from, as I mentioned earlier, asymptomatic to various degrees of organ dysfunction and death. The other thing that was really interesting is the autopsies. A lot of autopsies are taking place now trying to figure out what's going on with this disease. And so when we look at the autopsies that have been done on each of the organs that you see here, including the lymphatic system, which is part of our vascular system. When you think arteries and veins, think lymphatics also, the arteries and the, the lymphatics and the arteries, excuse me, the lymphatics and the veins are directly connected to each other. So anything that's happening in the lymphatic system is going to be happening in the other vascular systems. And the, of course, the um, when we think about the lymphatic system, it is, and in large part responsible for our immune response in the body. And they have found virus remnants in the lymphatics also. So the physiology of how each of these organs is negatively affected by coronavirus too is worth learning, but it's certainly beyond the scope of this presentation today. In this particular article, this group, and this is one of the articles that has been provided for you, they talked about how Again, mainly the lungs but are being affected, but other organs are being affected, just as mentioned, and that the skin and mucosal manifestations of the virus have been slower to be reported. Um, Janine McGuire, again, out of Genesis Healthcare, we, she's been working on this since April and has had very, very few, and they have 300 centers in this country. Very few of these manifestations have been reported to her. Why is that? We're, we're finding them all over the world in, in acute care, outpatient. Why aren't we finding these in long-term care? Is our population immune or are we not seeing them in our population because we don't know what they are and they're not being reported? 
and we're not cohorting the way we need to because we don't recognize these. So that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out with, with the study that we just started. So when you look at, in this particular study that we're looking at here, when you look at the diagnostic value of skin manifestations, dermatologists have identified outbreaks of these small blisters in 9% of the COVID uh, uh, patients that were studied with this particular, in, in this particular study, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. And another study for, from the Cleveland Clinic states that, now listen to this, another study from the Cleveland Clinic states that these skin rashes are predictive of COVID-19 infection. This, in this community-based observational study in the United Kingdom, there were about 9% of 337,000 patients who had, were positive for COVID. And up to 17% of that 9% reported skin eruptions that were the first clinical feature. 47% reported skin symptoms during their illness and up to 39% reported symptoms after their illness. In addition, 21% of that 9% reported the skin symptom as the only manifestation. There were no other symptoms. How often are we missing this in long-term care? Are we missing it? So the take-home message is that our skin teams in our buildings, including our CNAs, you've got to start with the people who see the skin the most. And it's our CNAs. They need to be on the outlook for any new rash or skin or eye redness or oral manifestations when they're feeding them, if they have to feed our patients. And report, the CNA needs to report to the appropriate person in the building to escalate the finding to the provider, to you, for differential diagnosis opportunities. So when, when um, if we have any of our, our DONs on the call today uh, or any of our administrators, you need to get this message out. When you think someone has COVID in your building, providers, you think someone has COVID in your building, you already have a protocol in place. Every building in this country has a protocol in place for cohorting. So if you think that someone has COVID, then you want to use that protocol, whatever you do, however you do, you cohort them first and then test, or do you test first and then cohort? It's going to depend on your individual protocols for your building. This information from the British Journal of Dermatology that you see here, all of these photographs that just um, that you just saw glide through, uh, I have the um, uh, website for you. They have fabulous photographs for you, and you can take these, snip these, use them any way you want. You can create training materials for your CNAs. You can put up um, placards uh, for when people are coming into your building from the community and give them an awareness of this. Everyone needs to know about this, ladies and gentlemen. So the SARS-CoV-2 is creating these skin issues and we're just beginning to understand them. We're just beginning to recognize them, at least from the perspective of um, damage that we're seeing through autopsies and the scanning electron microscope technology but we still don't understand exactly why. There's a lot of research that needs to take place. And we don't know the number of skin-related injuries at this time, and we're trying to make a difference for that also. However, research regarding these skin manifestations is now getting significant attention due to the number of skin disruptions that are taking place in all ages, from the young to the elderly across the globe. And again, many of these manifestations mimic known dermatological disorders. And in addition, COVID-related skin manifestations can appear very similar, as I mentioned, to 
pressure injuries, such as the deep tissue pressure injury, I'm going to show you photographs in just a minute, or peripheral arterial disease in the feet, which would be your COVID toes, and which we'll talk about later. So these are the five most common types of skin manifestations from this article by Young and this group. Another study, and I'd sent you that article on Shane uploaded it either last night or early this morning. I found another more current one that has described six primary types of cutaneous manifestations. So both articles have been provided for you to read if you haven't seen these articles yet. And then another thing that is so interesting, the Cleveland Clinic paper reported that um, an individual with COVID-19 may present with multiple simultaneous cutaneous abnormalities that differ in morphology. They have a different look to them. And that these silent manifestations may assist in carrier identification, giving the buildings, our buildings, an opportunity to stop the spread of the virus in the facility should the resident be infectious. So this report was looking at 375 patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19, including the lividoid uh, necrotic eruptions, which were noted in patients or residents with more severe, and I'm gonna say patients, because I'm, we've not gotten any information out of long-term care yet. We have not gotten any information out of long-term care yet related to this. So I'm just, I'm gonna use the word patient here. So the authors uh, echo the developing consensus that these skin manifestations may be uh, associated with occlusive vascular disease among other mechanisms, and we still do not understand all these widely varying natures of these manifestations. So this is your chillblain symptoms, called, commonly called COVID toes or acral lesions. It can be in the hands or the feet or both at the same time. It has that red purple discoloration. It can be painful and itchy. They appear the general consensus right now could change, but right now the general consensus is this appears late in the disease after other symptoms and are more common in children and younger adults. However, as you look at this photograph, look on the bottom left, these are older toes. Don't think that COVID toes is only for younger people. We are seeing them in older people. This is a very important slide for you. This is an important slide for anyone in any care setting, but it is specifically important for those of us who work and support long-term care. So we're gonna spend some time on this. So as you look at this, let's go from left to right. Is this a deep tissue pressure injury on the far left? Or, or is it a kidney terminal ulcer on the middle? Or is it a COVID skin damage? Now I'm giving you the answers, but let's talk through this a little bit. So the first one on the left is a deep tissue pressure injury that could be confused with the second or the third photograph where you see the shape between the first and the second photograph. You can even see that butterfly shape is almost identical. The literature tells us that a butterfly shape on somebody who is in the death and dying process may be a Kennedy terminal ulcer. The one on the far left is a deep tissue pressure injury. It is not a Kennedy terminal ulcer. And the one on the far right is the coagulopathy issue from COVID skin. So the thing about the first and second and the third is when we look at the second, the Kennedy terminal ulcer is also known as the unavoidable pressure ulcer by CMS. We are the only care setting that are between acute care and long-term care. We're the only care setting that gets the unavoidable pressure injury, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes. So one of the main differential diagnosis considerations when you're suspecting a Kennedy terminal ulcer is if the person is in the dying process, are they in organ or multi-organ failure and which organs are failing? 
So kidney terminal ulcers and organ failure, including the skin, go together. Now, kidney terminal ulcers can be over bony or non-bony prominences. And the kidney terminal ulcer, also known as skin failure, usually develops rapidly during the final stages of a person's life. Deep tissue injury, we're back to the left, left photograph, on the other hand, is a type of pressure injury and usually, but not always, develops over the bony prominences. Don't think that everything that's, on a bony, that's not on the bony prominence is not a pressure ulcer, because it could be. Uh, and as this, the term alludes to the photograph on the left, as the term alludes, this starts at the deep tissues at the bone muscle interface. So deep tissue injuries are related to immobility, creating pressure and shear forces that occlude and distort the blood flow to the skin, causing cellular deformation and uh, cellular death. The pressure etiology, when we look at this, is considered preventable and requires a pressure ulcer injury assessment and care plan for treatment. The third photo on the right is related to COVID skin damage. Uh, this uh, necrosis skin that you see here, it's superficial as opposed to deep. And as mentioned uh, earlier, the, or shown to you earlier, the dystrophin is called levito reticularis, and in this case has significant necrosis of the skin. In a recent study out of England, this type of uh, skin damage was seen in 6% of older adults. So my question for you is, how often is this happening in the building? And we're calling it either a kidney terminal ulcer or a deep tissue pressure injury or a pressure injury, and it is COVID related. And I have had two of these called into me from my clinicians in the field. So differentiating these three changes on this area of the body will require detective work and a thorough understanding of the resident's clinical conditions that may have created the risk for each of these manifestations. And if you like this information, please put in the chat, if you think this is important, anything you hear or see. Look at this one. This one just blew me away when I saw this. When I looked at that, I said, well, man, that's pink eye. Well, these are mucosal manifestations. So this conjunctivitis, the pink eye, it's been identified as a secondary symptom in 10 to 15% of the cases for COVID. Are you getting, are the buildings calling you and saying, we've got pink eye in here. We, we're having a lot of pink eye. Oh, we're ha what's going on? It's not pink eye. Probably isn't pink eye. The conjunctiva, that uh, clear thin membrane that covers the front of the surface of the eye, that's an extension of the mucous membrane system. And as you see on the right, you see the mouth where we're seeing the mucosal manifestations in the mouth. So again, some of the first per people and the people that see this more often is certainly going to be our, our nurses, our staff nurses, but our CNAs must have this information so that they can help the nurses to be able to help you, the providers, to be able to get the right diagnosis, to get the right treatment, and to cohort and treat as soon as possible. So as you look at these, this is just a, a few more of the manifestations. I'm not going to go through this um, for because we lost a little bit of time in the beginning. So the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has caused major disruptions. Now I'm gonna talk about wound management a little bit. I can't help myself, it's beyond my uh, control because I am a wound prevention and management um, clinician. This is what I focus just about 100% of my time on. And so in all of our settings, be it outpatient, home health, long-term care, inpatient, we've been dealing with this unprecedented wound management challenges during COVID-19 for multiple reasons. 
sometimes the, um, the, the disease is causing the wounds that are already there to worsen uh, from multiple areas of concern. Isolation, staffing issue, decreased systemic oxygen, which impairs wound closure for all wound etiologies. It doesn't matter what the, um, what the uh, etiology of that wound is. So this is, and, and to de decrease uh, provider oversight. In the beginning, you may not even be able to have gone into the buildings when all of this first started. And many of you are probably doing uh, remote, uh, or started doing remote care, which is fabulous, by the way. So we're beginning to learn more about this as we, as we and how to care for this as we go along. And this is from a um, article called Wound Center Without Walls, the new model of providing care during COVID-19. So it is worth noting that some of the guidance that's been offered related to COVID and the skin, ma skin manifestations comes from this well-respected organization, the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, and they have two papers out. Both papers have been provided for you. And in April, in, in April 2nd, early in all of this, the MPIP wrote, um, helped us to have a much needed affirmation of what we've been seeing on the ground and that, that that COVID-19 is the perfect storm for facility-acquired wounds, whether it's uh, because of decreased systemic oxygenation, whether you are that person's more at risk for a pressure injury. Uh, in my mind, all, all the time, we need to be doing for anyone at risk for pressure injuries in our building, which is everyone, or they wouldn't be in our building, even dementia puts you at risk for a pressure injury, that we should be doing um, um, pulse ox on all of our patients at risk every day. We particularly need to be doing pulse ox during the, the COVID, this COVID pandemic. So we, we, we need to, to look at getting our heads around some of these skin and mucosal membrane manifestations. And this is information that many, 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 many people in this country do not have. And the CDC is not reporting this and telling us that this is one of the manifestations for our uh, symptoms for COVID. So you want to ensure that your facilities are aware of and have processes in place to watch for and report these skin and mucosal manifestations. This is the, the initial definition of avoidable and unavoidable pressure injuries originated from CMS, from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, as part of the inspection process for long-term care, as part of the survey process. So, and the surveyors are reviewing our documentation and reporting and other processes in the facility looking for quality care issues related to caring for our residents. So when the surveyor determines that there is a facility acquired avoidable pressure ulcer injury, it becomes a quality issue that that building has to address. So it's worth mentioning that in general, pressure injuries are avoidable, but there are those pressure injuries that cannot be avoided due to the patient or resident's high acuity are deteriorating clinical condition. An example would be a patient or a resident, again, in the dying process who is immobile with decreased systemic oxygen and refuses to be turned because of the discomfort. That is their right. So this resident is now definitely a candidate for an unavoidable pressure injury. So the MPIP statement, uh, physician statement, acknowledges that even in the time of the pandemic, some pressure injuries should be considered avoidable. Some pressure injuries should be considered avoidable depending on intrinsic and intrinsic factors. And of course, our intrinsic factors, we understand all of that, but it includes nutrition, uh, poorly understood coagula coagulopathy associated with COVID-19. 
that's important. And then the perfusion up to the tissues and the organs that may have been uh, impaired because of this. And then in, extrinsic factors include um, uh, that are difficult to control, such as our uh, census issues, the uh, nursing staffing levels, the ability of pressure redistribution, uh, uh, mattresses that we may need more and more and more of those. So according to the, the um, National Pressure um, Advisory Panel, the standard of care, this is important ladies and gentlemen, please listen to this, the standard of care for critically ill patients includes support services, but we, we're not seeing critically ill patients as much in long-term care, but that is important for us to consider. And we want to um, to differentiate, do we have an unavoidable pressure injury here? And I'm gonna to talk to you some more about that because the providers, you really have a place in this. So here you go. The MPIP states that any determination of unavoidability requires an honest and thorough review of the documentation, the appropriateness and the adequacy of the evidence-based prevention measures that were implemented. So the key is documenting that all standard interventions have been implemented and attempted, even if unsuccessful, in case a pressure injury develops. So I'm not gonna go through this with you. This slide is in your slide deck and I'm gonna send it to Shane after the program and he's, it's gonna be one slide per page for you. So this will be in there, but I do wanna to come to this section and talk about this for just a moment. This is looking at some of the intrinsic factors and, and this is another, a second paper from the MPIP which has been uh, provided for you. And this is talking about um, in their paper uh, titled The Unavoidable Pressure Injury During COVID-19 they distinguish between the intrinsic and extrinsic factors, risk factors for COVID-19 skin injury, which could be very meaningful. You even want your surveyors to read this. And so this paper in acute care, there's no methodology. They have no mechanism for recognizing the unavoidable pressure injury in acute care. We do in long-term care. So this position paper, we're the we're one of the we're the care setting that has the unavoidable pressure injury that is recognized by CMS. So this position paper from the MPIP discusses that these skin changes that we're seeing in residents with COVID, including those that are similar to deep tissue pressure injury, this is actually written in the paper, are unavoidable skin manifestations from this disease, not pressure ulcer injuries, and that from an intrinsic perspective, the paper states that the virus itself creates a systemic coagulopathy, including hypercoagulation and microvascular occlusion, which has led to ischemic strokes, myocardial infarctions, venous thromboembolism, acute limb ischemia, and pulmonary embolism, and that these skin manifestations may mimic the appearance, again, of deep tissue injury. And finally, the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel acknowledges that if the vessels are significantly are fully occluded, then, Adequate pre-perfusion is not achievable even in the presence of reasonable repositioning and turning of the patient and the use of appropriate support surfaces. So this is very important for our buildings to have access to this paper. So you wanna share it for your papers. You wanna ensure that your facilities are aware of and have processes in place to watch for and report these skin manifestations to you for differential diagnosis opportunities and what you're trying to figure out is, is this. Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients 
At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. The MPIP from which this slide was created discusses the uh, extrinsic factors also. However, the points are meaningful across the continuum of care. When they first, when they wrote this paper, it was specifically for acute care. But the points in this paper are good across the continuum. So they talked about the extrinsic factors uh, and um, some of the things that we have in long-term care that were some of our ch extrinsic challenges was staffing challenges, caregiver burnout, the loss of manpower because of the number of people in long-term care, the clinicians who got COVID-19. And so we have a lot of challenges related to this. And these aren't excuses for providing inadequate care. These are realities of recent and current status of issues outside of the patient or the facility's ability to control. And our facilities are trying their best to care for and protect our vulnerable population. Now, one of the things I want you to look at very quickly is there are an F686, and if you're in long-term care, you have to know F686. Also, F684 is important to you. Providers, as you come into our buildings, you need to know the regulations, and I'm sure you do. So F686 has four constructs that the survey team is going to look at related to unavoidability. And that is, was this person assessed head to toe, front to back uh, for their skin assessment and for all of their assessments, the comorbidities, have they been assessed and providers we depend on our providers to get every one of those risk factors documented that puts that patient and an ICD-10 correlated with that, that puts that patient at risk for an unavoidable pressure injury or for pressure injuries in general. Then the interventions need to meet the standards of practice. They need to be monitored. The interventions need to be monitored to make sure they're working and they need to be revised. If somebody comes up with what would be determined to be an, an avoidable pressure injury, was the, were there no revisions? Why didn't we catch this? So did that plan of care work? So it's important to note that even if you, this is so important providers, listen to this. Even if you agree that this pressure injury is COVID related, that it may be due to a hypoxic state from the disease or low systemic oxygen levels after survival from COVID, the facility must have had pressure injury prevention program in place for that resident that meets the regulatory, uh, that meets the regulatory guidelines. So if these things were not done, if these four constructs that the surveyor is looking for were not done, were not documented, then the facility will get an F tag, even if you, the provider, even if you, the provider, agrees and has documented this as an unavoidable pressure injury. If the building didn't have the pressure injury prevention plan in place, it doesn't matter what you say, they're going to get an F tag because the pressure injury plan was not in place to begin with. 
So before any decision can be made about avoidability or unavoidable of a pressure injury that develops during COVID, all the factors should be considered on a case-by-case basis, including the intrinsic and intrinsic factors. Before labeling a pupiric skin manifestation in COVID-19 patients, consider that the skin manifestation may mimic the appearance of pressure injuries and should be considered in your differential diagnosis. So the um, areas of discoloration or tissue injury that are non-loaded, this is important, I even highlighted it for you. Areas of discoloration or tissue injury on non-loaded anatomic location with no history of pressure and shear stress or no use of a medical device are most likely not a pressure injury. And then we have our microvascular occlusions that are gonna increase the magnitude and severity of the non-modifiable risk from this disease and then multi-organ dysfunction issues from, um, from multiple illnesses are going to also complicate what's happening with the skin. So this is, this is complicated. This is not easy and there's no easy formula for this. So present on admission, this is very important. If your resident or is coming back to your building, they went to the hospital or coming back to the building, we've gone to another level of recognizing, trying to recognize present on admission pressure injuries because of proning. That's part of the problem. And we have to look at the, traditionally we look at the backside. We look at the occiput. We look at the sacrum. We may look at the ischial tuberosities if someone has some type of spinal cord or maybe they had a stroke as situation. They're not ambulatory any longer. We look at the heels, but have we been looking at these areas? And this is a great photograph showing you this gentleman who has been proned here where this white arrow is, this is damage to the skin from, uh, that is this injury right here. And you can see this is full thickness. You can see the masseter is actually swollen. There are three proning issues here. And then over here is a stage two from as a medical device related pressure injury from some tubing. Our, uh, and I'm looking over here because I have a second screen over here. So our clinicians, our buildings, our nurses must do a head-to-toe skin assessment a little bit differently and focused than they used to if the patients are coming back from ICU particularly. So it's very important that our, our, our teams recognize this and do their head-to-toe skin assessment, head-to-toe, front-to-back, and they don't just look at the toes, they look at the, uh, they don't look just look at the heel, but they're looking at the toes, the top of the feet, differently because of the COVID skin manifestations. And you want to catch those as present on admission. In this particular article, uh, there's this phenomenon where the person can have low oxygen levels from COVID. Uh, the, actually, it was termed the hyper, hypoxia. And some of these people may be uh, very ill. However, not everyone who tests positive for COVID-19 is going to get low oxygen levels. There are people who can be um, have the fever, the muscle aches, and maybe they don't have the low oxygen, but ultimately uh, we want to think about this and related to lung damage for people who have had COVID, they survived, survived COVID, they have lung damage from this, could cause the pulse ox to be lower. And we know that lower systemic uh, oxygen levels put the patient, first of all, at risk for pressure injury, and then create issues for closures. I'm hearing my providers, I work with a lot of providers around the country. My company works with a lot of provider groups and the providers, they're running their numbers now. They're looking at their data and wounds that they used to get closed in a fairly short period of time. The same type of wound, the same condition is taking the, in, in our patients with COVID are taking long, who survived COVID are taking longer to close. 
we don't have the data for this. I'm, this is anecdotal, but they are saying that the patients who have had COVID that the, is taking longer to close, well, is that related to systemic oxygen? Are we looking at our pulse oxes appropriately for people who survived? In addition, in addition, there is a recommendation for anyone who has had COVID that we start breathing exercises, that we do pulmonary rehabilitation. Are we doing pulmonary rehab in our buildings? And if you're working with physical therapy and they are, um, and I did this all, used to do this all the time, especially for my cardiac patients, uh, we'd have that pulse ox on there and we would be walking and I'm looking at and watching, is their pulse ox diminishing while we are doing our, our, our getting, trying to get them more mobile and more active? If the recommendation is, if the pulse ox diminishes more than 3% during ambulation, that this person, uh, that it should not drop more than 3%. So there, are, there have been physicians who are recommending that the pulse ox be done one, one to two times a day in all long-term care facilities, uh, maybe to help detect early COVID. It's not, a, it's not a diagnostic criteria, but it certainly might be a symptom. And it's not a recommendation by the CDC now also. So if, the, if your pulse ox for your patient or resident is less than 90%, then there probably needs to be more evaluations taking place. So I'm not gonna go into telemedicine, but please put a note for Shane so that he could, uh, so, so we can talk about, our, uh, are you seeing, are you using telemedicine? Is it working for you? I'm gonna have a lot of providers. There was a provider I was working, uh, talking to recently who is actually having the nurses to take photographs, send the photographs to her. And then they make a Zoom call and the, the provider is over the, they have somebody else um, holding the camera and they are helping, literally helping or holding the phone, helping the nurse in the room with the patient or resident to look at that wound and communicate with the provider as best they can because the provider was not able to get into the building. So that is one of our challenges. Um, uh, Genesis Healthcare is using a lot of telehealth and we are seeing finally, we've been talking about this for many years and we're finally getting to where we're using it. Now I just wanted to show you uh, this, this is the paper that was provided for you that looks at the um, um, associated COVID-19 cutaneous manifestations that have been increasingly reported. Again, the pathophysiological mechanism needs to be more extensively explored, and they separated this into six distinguished clinical phenotypes, and that's each one of these is what you're seeing here. So this is also, as I said, one of the articles that I have for you, because I think it is so important that we look at what this looks like so that we can do some differential, so that you can do some differential diagnoses. So what can we do about COVID-19? You wanna make sure that all facility teams, the family, the residents, where appropriate, know about the skin and mucous membrane manifestations from COVID-19, especially, especially our CNAs who are seeing the resident skin more than anybody else in the building. I think we need to stay abreast of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel's guidance related to COVID skin and wound healing. So we are getting some good supportive information there, particularly related to unavoidability for this disease, for what's happening with the skin that we're gonna get F-tags for. If we don't understand this and we don't do our differential diagnosis well, we're gonna get F-tags for things we don't deserve F-tags for. You wanna ensure that the initial head to toe skin assessments are taking place for residents in your buildings. 
at particularly after if they're coming back from ICU. You don't want to miss a present on admission pressure injury or mechanical related device pressure injury and get an F tag later. You want to ensure your buildings are following the regulatory guidance and F686 for prevention and treatment of the pressure injuries. You can't call it an unavoidable pressure ulcer injury if you didn't follow the guidance for prevention of pressure ulcer injuries in your building. You want to ensure that the protocols have been created for your facility and give guidance for how the facility handles these dermatological manifestations that may be COVID related. How do you want this reported to you? Have this discussion with your building. Who's notified first? When you're going to test? When you're going to cohort? When and what to do for starting treatment for COVID? Most of this is already in place in everyone's building. The only difference is the unusual symptoms of COVID and how you're going to work through this process if the skin or mucosal manifestations, which are silent, should come up in your building. You want to use technology to op optimize efficiency with photographs, technologies, uh, with Zoom uh, or whatever platform you use, maybe use um, My Meetings or something like this. Uh, you want to, to uh, efficiently and safely to help diagnose the silent COVID-19 dermatosis. You want to be aware that low systemic oxygen may impair wound healing opportunities, specifically in those residents who have survived COVID-19 and continue to have a low pulse ox. And you want to use, heart, you want to use current evidence-based wound interventions for all hard to heal wounds. And if you haven't had a wound course for a long time, I'm going to encourage you to go take a wound course. What you learned in uh, medical school, what I learned in physical therapy school until recently, now all physical therapy schools have an entire semester on the skin. But what we learned previously is not sufficient to, to take care of wounds, just not sufficient. You need to take some classes. Now, this is a very messy slide, and I apologize for this, but I thought it was important for you, and you let me know if you think it was important. We have ICD-10 directions to use to help us with um, COVID skin, reporting COVID skin. And it's the directions are the ICT-10 direction is to use an additional code to identify pneumonia or other manifestations. And it tells us the provider or the practice to use U07.1, which you've probably been using, as the first listed diagnosis for a person with confirmed COVID-19. Then you add an additional diagnosis for pneumonia, which you've been doing probably, or other conditions or symptoms such as dermatologic or mucosal uh, manifestation. So D68.8 is a billable ICD code used to specify a diagnosis of, here you go, other spe specified coagulation defects. So this is going to cover your COVID toes and fingers or your acral lesions. Then L99 is a billable ICD code used to specify a diagnosis for other disorders of the skin and subcutaneous tissue in diseases that are classified elsewhere, such as COVID in U07.1. Now, it says here skin and subcutaneous tissues. So I'm not sure if mucosal skin is covered elsewhere. I, haven't, um, I have a call actually this afternoon with a coding specialist to have this talk, but I couldn't get through with the coding specialist before we did this uh, program. So uh, we're trying to find out if the ICD-10 codes that are available to you are appropriate for COVID skin manifestations. And I'm part of a group that's trying to identify this. Do we need a specific code 
for COVID-related dermatological issues. We think it's necessary so that we can clearly determine and get clarity around related to the diagnosis, documentation, coding, reporting, and reimbursement for these skin manifestations. And I'm not a coding expert in any way, shape, or form. I'm a wound specialist. So if you have thoughts about this, please put it in, in the chat. And I'm hoping that I'll get a copy of this to find out your thoughts. Um, and I think that Shane may be able to do that for me. So we're almost done here. This is a, um, if you're interested, my company, as I told you earlier, has graciously allowed me to go on one of my passion tangents, and that is we are creating a long-term care COVID and skin and mucous membrane registry. It is for long-term care. Anybody can um, put information in, but we are focusing on long-term care. This is the only registry so far that we know of that is doing this. We are different. We are not like other care sites, and we need to get information from our care site so that we can address this specifically for us. One of the things that is different about this particular one is it is for long-term care or includes long-term care and skilled nursing. We're gathering images also for our population. We see a lot of images on younger people. When you scour the internet, lots of images on younger people. We need those. We need the images on the older adults so that we understand what's going on. And it asks for both skin and mucous membrane manifestations. When these manifestations are taking place, which is very different, are they taking place before they have the other symptoms during the disease with the uh, symptoms that we uh, are familiar with or after? And it looks as if there's a group of symptoms that are happening at the end of this disease also. And then we're also acting, asking about dermatologic disruptions after the vaccination. So that is, that's, uh, we don't have the, um, we're going live on Friday. So I didn't have the, uh, information to give you today. If you want information for this, please put in the chat that you want this information. And then perhaps the uh, Florida um, uh, Medical Directors Association will allow us to send you this link and that'll be their decision because you are their constituents. This is another uh, important initiative and this is from the American Academy of Dermatology. They have an online uh, dermatology registry also uh, the what was when I went and researched this and we were thinking about okay we can do this but they asked for hospital and outpatient well hospital and outpatient you're not picking up long-term care so as I looked at whatever registries I could find there were about three of them this one was one of uh, one of the a very good one but it didn't cover our care setting but if you would like to enter into this registry it is going to be very well respected registry also and so in summary I want to just say that COVID-19 has various uh, clinical manifestations that targets multiple organs, including the skin and mucosa. These manifestations may present in many forms and they occur at different stages of the disease, such as before, during, and after. Sometimes these skin changes occur as the first symptom and may be the only symptom. Differentiating a deep tissue pressure injury from a kidney terminal ulcer from COVID-19 skin manifestations is important and can be confusing as these skin changes have similar presentations. And although, once again, COVID toes is primarily in younger patients, there have been reports of COVID toes and fingers in older individuals, including in long-term care. I've had reports of this myself when my clinicians are saying, the building is saying, what is this? And we don't know what to tell them. These skin changes can manifest due to many reasons. They can happen for COVID-19, but it could be a medication reaction. It could be a reaction to the vaccine. 
It could be an allergic reaction. So here we go with our differential diagnosis. If you have access to dermatologists, you may need to partner with dermatologists to help you unless you are really good at your dermatology um, differential diagnosis. So we may need to access our dermatology uh, specialist. You want to be vigilant, vigilant, vigilant for present on admission pressure injuries on residents who have been critically ill in the acute hospital and return to our care setting. That needs to be that thorough head to toe, front to back skin assessment. It takes on a new and different meaning in the COVID-19 era. So ladies and gentlemen, what you see here are the resources, as I said, uh, um, one, two, three, four re resources that I thought might be meaningful, but you might wanna read any and all of these. And I wanna say thank you. We have five minutes. Do you have questions or comments? Was this meaningful to you? Did we make a difference today for you and how you care for your patients and residents? I mean, I'm going to go out of the limb and say it was very meaningful. <laughs> this was this was a great presentation. We had a question: um, Do the SARS co um, COVID skin lesions have peculiar histology? They do have a, a different histology, actually. And one of the slides—I don't know if I showed it to you or not. Let me see. And one of the slides from the MPIP, and I may have taken that out because. Um, Oh, here, here's one right here. So when they are looking at the histology, there's definitely differences and different uh, in that, in that um, article that I showed you that has gonna have the six different manifestations, they really showed how each one of these morphologies that the uh, histology shows up differently in each one of these different manifestations. So yes, there are some differences and we are from autopsies and from biopsies, we are beginning to get a little bit of knowledge about this. Thank you. So I think you answered one question that I had about how long will you see these um, skin manifestations? Is it possible to see it after um, an active infection? And I believe you indicated that, but do you have any, any other um, data or information about the length of time you know we we see long COVID now yes <laughs> I'm just long curious. COVID absolutely long haulers you bet and I bet we're seeing it in our buildings also and I think we need to have a talk on that sometime um what I, I did look up something like that related to people that are seeing these skin manifestations because as I said my grandson had it my neighbor had it and they are saying anywhere from that it's lasting anywhere from two, I think it was either, I think it was two to 12 days is what they're saying. Uh, and that's the only time period I had. Now my neighbors, hers went away, the, the, the brightness of it went away after about two weeks, but she still had the, a little bit of skin discoloration that took place from her skin manifestation, but it was not active any longer. That's great. Well, if you guys have any other questions um, for Pamela, please do not hesitate to either email myself or Shane. Um, I believe we're going to get um, your email address up there too. So Pamela, you may see some questions coming directly. Absolutely. Yeah, if the, all the links that um, 
that will be shared with us. We will put them in our library. And I thank everyone for joining. This was, a, Pam, Pamela, this was great. This was wonderful. Thank and you. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care.